I think this is the month, if I recall, it seems, of course, with the faux pas last week, uh, it doesn't seem like it, but um, it's been um, a while since I've been in a mainline church, but I think this is the time of year that all the mainline churches dedicate a month to stewardship. We don't do that here. Uh, If our scripture speaks about stewardship, we're going to speak about stewardship. If, uh, if the verses that we're reading that week do not deal with stewardship, then we won't. And you know what? God's taken great care of us in that regard. Um, thank, and I, I need to thank each one of you for your stepping up to the plate, for understanding that what we have is His, and we're supposed to give a portion of it back to Him out of thanks. So thank you for that. But our staff decided that our mission, our emphasis this month should be on missions. We talk a lot about local missions, and you and us do a great job reaching out to the local community, and we will never stop that. But it just starts there. It goes beyond our community to this country, and being able to help with uh, uh, victims of a hurricane or a tornado or or poor people in Appalachia or wherever it might be in the United States and even beyond that out into other parts of the world some of which you may have never heard of the whole intent behind this month-long emphasis is for you to you to gain a wider vision, a greater vision of what the kingdom of God really looks like. Uh, Last week we had uh, field workers from Southeast Asia here to talk to us a little bit about where they did their work. And this week I have the privilege of uh, allowing you to hear uh, a friend of mine I had been in seminary for about a year and a half, maybe a year and two uh, thirds, and went to my first Greek class. And uh, we didn't have that many kids in the in the class. We were we were pretty uh, we were pretty small number, maybe fifteen or so. Uh, and there was this guy sitting there that uh, was on the other side of the room. We weren't introduced or anything like that, but after the class, he came up to me and said, someone said you're from Myrtle Beach, and I'm from Myrtle Beach too, and I travel up here every weekend. So uh, we decided that maybe we could do a little carpooling to seminary and, and thus began a relationship, and, and I don't know, he'll, he'll probably tell you how long we, we did that, but uh, uh, through thick and thin, through some scary times a uh, 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 crash that totaled my vehicle and you know and uh, uh, all these things that he was he was right there with us uh, I learned a lot from Stefan hopefully Stefan learned a little bit from me about you about us in America because our cultures are different but I want to uh, introduce to you Stefan Sultanov from Bulgaria to speak to us today about whatever is on his heart. Come, Stefan. Welcome him.
Thank you, man. It is always great to carpool and get in a car accident, especially when it's not your car. There are several things in life that uh, you're just not able to choose. If you think about it, one of those things is you cannot choose your parents. Uh, in fact, you cannot even choose uh, when to be born. But thinking in that line of thought, uh, you cannot choose where to be born. And I was born on that other side. Uh, some of you may remember that time when there was a so-called Iron Curtain. Uh, a divide between the West and the East, between freedom and dictatorship regime. It was a time when I was born that uh, you couldn't really go to church. You couldn't have a Bible. Uh, you couldn't tell anyone that you believed in God. I was growing up as a typical child. In fact, uh, we were indoctrinated from kindergarten all the way through uh, high school and uh, university uh, and at your job place uh, that there is no God. This was the most basic, foundational belief of communism. And I have to admit that in my life I... <laughs> I had really thought about God. In fact, the first time I thought about God was when God was crying. I was at my grandmother's uh, apartment. It was raining outside, and uh, I looked and I said, Grandma, look, it's raining. She said, uh, yeah, when it's raining, it means that God is crying. I said, wow, what is, what's that? And uh, I realized there's a lot of those sayings in our language, uh, if this and that, then God, whatever. But I looked at Grandma. I didn't say a word, but I said, you must be crazy. There is no God. I was a typical child. I had no idea of any sort of divine being. For me, God was a thing or something. I had never been in a church in my life, never seen a Bible. And then came that time that some of you may remember, you know, uh, with uh, Reagan and Gorbachev and... Uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89. And so my country was now a free country. You could talk about God. You can read the Bible. And so I get invited to this uh, church event in a uh, movie theater where uh, several churches put together some sort of a event to uh, share the good news with other people. And so I go there and I attend that meeting. goes like forever. Uh, and they, uh, they talked and they sang and they talked and they sang and they talked more and then they sang more. Uh, and being somewhat of a, an amateur musician, uh, I really got drawn by that uh, uh, song. It was one of those 7-Eleven songs. Have you heard of those? Do you guys know the 7-Eleven? You guys worship team? No? You did some of these. It's like seven words 11 times. Okay? <laughs> All right? And then you bunch of... You throw a bunch of hallelujahs at the end. And so they kept singing that song, and it was, it was a very simple song, simple lyrics, okay? Uh, it, it said, uh, uh, Jesus is lifted up, and Satan is defeated. Now, by the third hour, I was starting to get a sense that, okay, this Jesus must be something related to the, 
to the God on high. Uh, my problem was I had no clue who this uh, guy or this thing, Satan, was. And so later on, I get invited to go to, uh, uh, to a church service. I attend a few times. And at the end of that one week, on a Saturday afternoon, there was a youth meeting. It was packed with people. And there was an invitation for folks who uh, understood the message of salvation to come to the front and to commit their lives to God. And that's when I can say I made a decision to turn to God and uh, to become a Christ follower, to become a disciple of Jesus. It was an exciting time of my life. My life was changed. I was in a completely new group of people, hanging out with good folks who also believed in God. And I was so excited, I wanted to also share that with everybody else. In fact, I think uh, some of us have had similar experiences, and we want to share with others about our faith, about what God has done in our lives. Uh, some of you may have heard of uh, evangelist Billy Graham. He tells of a story uh, early in his ministry. He went to a small town to preach a sermon, and uh, during the day he needed to uh, mail a letter. And so uh, he asked a young boy on the streets where the post office was. He had gotten the directions, and so uh, he thanked the boy and also told him, now if you come tonight to the Baptist church, you will hear me telling everyone how to get to heaven. Now the boy looked at him with a big uh, level of uh, reluctance and said, uh, I'm not sure I'll be there. <laughs> you don't even know your way to the post office. <laughs> the fact is that as Christians, we've come uh, to know the way to heaven. Uh, but many of us also know from reading the Bible that God has not really called you just to be saved, just so you could avoid going to hell. But He has also a purpose for your life, and... God also wants you to share your faith, to tell those around you about salvation, about the good news of Jesus. As I uh, talk with people around, as we travel and visit different churches, I talk to pastors and other missionaries, uh, I get the sense that a lot of times people hear about this. It's talked about in church. But when we leave, we are kind of left with no real answers as to uh, what can we do about it. How can we actually share the good news with those around us? And this morning I want to share a text from the scripture, from the Bible, uh, that speaks to this question. It gives us actually a very unique answer as to what we can do to reach out those around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. And the text is found in uh, the Gospel of John. This is in the New Testament, as just the fourth book in the, in the New Testament, the very beginning, in chapter 1. And I'm going to read a few verses, and then I'm going to read a few more verses a little bit later. So we're going to be in the, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. For this reading, I'm going to use the translation called The Message, which is more of a today's language translation, but you're free to follow in any of the Bibles you may have in your hands. The next day, John was back at his post with two disciples who were watching. He looked up, saw Jesus walking nearby, and said, here he is, 
God's Passover lamb. The two disciples heard him and went after Jesus. Jesus looked over his shoulder and said to them, What are you after? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He replied, Come along and see for yourself. They came, saw where he was living, and ended up staying with him for the day. It was late afternoon when this happened. Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. It's time for him to make known his mission to the world. Uh, right after he's tested in the desert, he goes to the Jordan River. And then uh, he finds uh, his cousin, John the Baptist. And Johnny is uh, actually baptizing people. He's telling people about salvation, about the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself is baptized. He gets out of the water and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And then John looks at him and tells the people around, this is the Lamb of God who forgives the sins of the world. And then later, John the Baptist says pretty much the same words to two of his disciples, John and Andrew. These two are ordinary people. They're just like you and me. They're striving for spiritual reality. Their hearts are open. They are ready to follow Jesus. If you think about it, uh, in our lives, we also have such people. Uh, people with seeking hearts. Those who uh, don't necessarily believe in God. Those who've never had a personal encounter with Jesus. Uh, for some of us, this could be a family member. It could be a relative. It could be your neighbor next door. It could be... Uh, your children's friends' parents. It could also be some of the buddies that you play golf with. The folks that may have gone to church sometime. The folks that may have grown in a Christian family even. Folks that may have read uh, even parts of the Bible. They may have heard about God, but they have never really had a personal encounter with Jesus. Jesus looked for such people, people with seeking hearts. But how he, did he witness to them? That's our big question today. What did he really do? As Jesus is leaving, he extends to those two disciples of John a simple invitation. As we read it in the text, those folks are folks with seeking hearts. And he simply tells them, come along and see for yourself. And then John and Andrew follow Jesus right away. They end up spending the rest of that day with Jesus. And I can just uh, imagine them in my mind uh, sitting around the table and talking about uh, fishing and uh, fishing business and boats and seafood platters and, uh, uh, and about the kingdom of God as well. Uh, Jesus gives them an opportunity to get to know him in the most natural context, in the context of personal relationship. Personal relationship. In 2008, my wife and I came across some international students in the Myrtle Beach area. Uh, some of them we met at Walmart, others at Subway when you go and get a sandwich. 
Uh, others were just walking alongside the road, carrying their Walmart bags or riding a bicycle. You probably have seen those guys. Later on, we realized there's about 3,000 of them coming to the beach every summer from all kinds of countries like Bulgaria, our own country, like Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, Egypt, um, even China. And we started speaking with some of these people. We started uh, making connections. Uh, we took them to the stores so they won't have to walk for miles with their Walmart bags. But then we also started inviting them to our home and we cooked dinners. We did barbecues, we watched the movie together. As we sat around the table, we started noticing something very special happening. Relationships were being established. And it was in that context that uh, we would ask them, well, tell me about your university. Tell me about your major. Tell me about your country. Tell me about your hometown. Do you have siblings? What are your dreams? What do you want to be when you finish your degree? And so we'd learn about them. But that was also the time when they would start asking us questions. They would ask us, well, what, are you, what are you doing in the States? And we'd say, well, we're students. And what do you study? And say theology. And a lot of them would be like, what? What do you mean by that? And so you had to explain, you know. But that's the thing, you know, like you study some things about God. And uh, what are you going to be? I want to say a missionary, but it would be a word that they wouldn't have a clue what that would mean. So I'd say, I'll be a priest. Oh, I see. And it was in the context of that relationship that was building that we had an opportunity to start sharing about our own life about what God has done in our lives about the good news of salvation about our Lord Jesus Christ you see natural relationships are the easiest way to get access to the heart of a person and also to gain the right to speak into someone else's life if you think about it, Jesus could have shared the news of salvation and about the kingdom of God with those two disciples right then and there. He would have told them the good news on the spot. And yet he does something different. He invites John and Andrew to come along and see for themselves. Come check me out, says Jesus. Let's be friends. But then also we start seeing some sort of a model, some sort of a pattern that is established. Because uh, Jesus first invites those two disciples of John with those simple words, come along and you will see. Andrew spends just a few hours with Jesus. He's so excited. His life is already impacted by this encounter with Jesus. He just cannot keep it to himself. A true encounter with Jesus can never remain a private matter. And so the first thing we see Andrew doing is he runs to his own brother. And uh, it's his brother Simon. We know as uh, Peter as well. And then he goes and tells him, and then he brings him to Jesus. That's what the text tells us a little further in the next few verses. It says, Andrew 
Simon Peter's brother, was one of those two who heard John's witness and followed Jesus. The first thing he did after finding where Jesus lived was find his own brother, Simon, telling him, we found the Messiah, that is Christ. He immediately led him to Jesus. Jesus uh, took one look up and said, uh, you're John's son, Simon. From now on, your name is Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. But then, uh, on the next day, we see Jesus extending that same invitation to another guy, and that's Nate. It's, uh, it's Philip, actually. And then Philip, the first thing he does, goes and finds Nathaniel and extends to Nathaniel that same type of invitation. Come and see for yourself. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. When he got there, he ran across Philip and said, Come, follow me. Philip's hometown was Bethsaida, the same as Andrew and Peter. Philip went and found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote of in the law, the one preached by the prophets. It's Jesus, Joseph's son, the one from Nazareth. Nathanael said, Nazareth? You've got to be kidding. But Philip said, Come, see for yourself. A true encounter with Jesus cannot remain a private matter. What you've experienced with God is too great to be kept private. And it's also meant by God to be shared. So you would tell others about it. If you think about it for a second, very realistically, God could call people and transform their lives in a miraculous way. Did you hear that well? God can really call people and transform their lives in a miraculous way. There's really nothing impossible for God. When you think about the story that we read in the Bible, you look back into the Old Testament a little bit, and you're going to find these stories of God giving a miraculous child to Abraham and Sarah. You may recall when God took the Israelites out of Egypt and performed miracles and that led them miraculously in the desert. I'm sure you'll remember this little guy by the name of David that God empowered miraculously to stand up against uh, Goliath the giant and to have the courage to face this guy and actually kill him and save his people, Israel. We move a little bit into the New Testament, we'll find Jesus himself. God in human flesh. And he healed the leper, the blind, the bleeding woman. He was the one who uh, cast out demons out of people. He calmed the storm. He walked on water, turned the water into wine. There's really nothing impossible for God. And yet, in his perfect will, in his perfect choice of strategy, he has decided to use you and me to do his mission in this world, to reach out to those around us with the good news of salvation. You see, with God there is no plan B. That's it. That is his strategy. You and I are his strategy. 
I know you're probably sitting there and thinking, well, hold on, I got that part. Well, help me figure this out. I'm, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a, a minister. I'm not a deacon. I'm not an elder. I'm not a board member. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a seminary student. I'm not even an evangelist. How do you want me to do that? Well, I want to share one thing with you. To evangelize simply means to share your faith and to share the good news of Jesus. As simple as it sounds. In fact, if you look through the New Testament, the very word evangelist is only mentioned three times in the whole New Testament. But how many times we see Jesus himself extending that invitation to people? How many times we see the first disciples and the first Christians extending that same invitation to others, sharing their faith and sharing the good news of Jesus? In fact, the Apostle Paul charges one of his disciples, Timothy, when he says, uh, do the work of an evangelist. It doesn't mean that Timothy was an evangelist, but he could certainly do the work of an evangelist. Pretend to be one. Do it good. Share your faith. Tell others about Jesus. Come along and see for yourself. That is an invitation for people to look at our lives, to read us as open books. We invite people to hear our personal testimony so they can see the transformation God has done in our lives, but also so we can share the good news with them. And here's the danger when I say this. Some of us may quickly think, well, isn't it enough that I'm a good Christian, that I help my neighbors, that I'm always uh, helpful, that I'm uh, always kind to people, and that I show a good example? And I think that's, that's very good. I think that's what God calls us to be, to be light in this world, to be the salt of this world, to be a chosen people, to be different. That's what holy means, to be different, really different. But we shouldn't deceive ourselves. If you think you can just witness to others by your good way of life, you're ju just doing the half, half the job. That's it. Because you look at Andrew, when he goes to his brother, Simon, he actually starts telling him about Jesus. He's not just showing him how good he is now that he's met Jesus. But he tells him, we have found the Messiah. Come along. Come check it out. You got to come and see that. And then you see the same thing is true of Philip. He goes to Nathaniel and actually tells him about Jesus of Nazareth, which is kind of surprising for Nathaniel. A few years back, I was sitting uh, with a young guy from Bulgaria, one of those international students. It was around midnight, uh, just uh, a little south of 21st Avenue in Myrtle Beach. We're sitting on that cement bench between two of the big hotels, and I'm sharing the good news with him. I have my Bulgarian Bible open, and uh, we keep talking, and then um, he's ready to make a decision to become a Christ follower. And so... Uh, as we're getting ready to pray, which he didn't know how to do, so I was going to help him out a little bit. Uh, he looks at me with a strange, strange look on his face, and he asked me uh, the question that I'll probably remember for the rest of my life. He looked at me and said, Why has no one ever told me about God 
and salvation. And you see, I sat there on that cement bench, midnight. I had all my theological training as my background. I had taken all the courses in Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff. And quite honestly, I had no answer. How would you answer such a question? Why has no one ever told me about Jesus and salvation? But see, my point is this. Jordan, Jordan, that was his uh, name, original name, he came at the beginning of the summer, and we became friends, and we developed that friendship, that relationship through the summer. And you see, he saw my example. He saw my wife's example. He could pick up a lot of the good Christian behavior, good Christian talk that we had. But the fact is, it never led him to saving faith in Jesus before I actually shared the good news with him. Before I actually told him about Jesus and about salvation. It says in the scripture, it's recorded that faith comes from hearing the word, not from good behavior. Now, don't get me wrong on this. Uh, we need to reflect the light of Christ. We need to reflect the change that God has uh, effected in our lives. But unless we share the good news of salvation, there's no chance for people to really know what they have to believe. There's no way for them to figure out who this Jesus is and why they need salvation. If we need to bring others to Jesus, we need to invite them into our lives. We develop those relationships and also tell them the good news of salvation. I want to pause for one second as we think about this. I'm sure you probably have on your handout a little space where I would like for you to think of maybe three people in your own life in a very practical way. And write down those names. It could be uh, some of your neighbors, some relative, or someone that is close to you, somewhere around you, that you know for sure they're not really what we would consider as a believer or Christ follower. Take a moment and think about that. Don't rush. A neighbor, a friend, a co-worker, a classmate, if you're in school or college, Folks that have never had a personal encounter with God, write down those names and keep that handout with you as well when you leave. I'm going to suggest just a few practical things that we can do if you want to reach out to those few people that you have on your list there. I knew your grandfather. I mean, I'm sure we all heard some of these words once, once in our lives. Or I knew your mom or I knew your brother or something like that. Uh, I was in my home church, had just become a Christian. And I'm talking to this uh, elderly woman. And she was leading the uh, women's Bible study and women's meeting on a Tuesday night. I was around 14 at the time. Uh, and then she drops this thing. You know, I, I used to know your grandfather. And uh, 
She tells me she recognized me by my family name. I didn't know her before. She didn't know me either. But uh, she goes on to tell me that, in fact, uh, many years earlier, she used to live in our house, that she rented a room from my grandfather. And later on I learned that, uh, in fact, there were small meetings of uh, Christians where she was. Now, none of my family was a Christian at the time. That was during communism. Um, in fact, my father confirmed the story, and he remembered her from the time when he was a child. So. If I look at it from today's point, it's probably about at least, let's say, 50 or 55, 60 years ago. And quite honestly, I wasn't really told what they were doing when they got together. All I know that at that time, they would go from one house to another. They would even go to the mountains, almost like doing sports, as a, as a pretense for their meetings, because you weren't allowed to meet police can come and arrest you if you're meeting as, as a Christian group. And so they would go from home to home so you wouldn't look suspicious if you got to the same, same apartment every, uh, every week and same group is coming. That's suspicious. People will call and say something's going on, so they'll come and arrest the, the, the Christians there. And so they rotated a little bit and they went to different spots. And I really don't know what they were doing, but <laughs> I'm supposing that they did a lot of what we do today. They probably read the scripture. They probably prayed. And one of the things that, that we typically do when, when we gather in someone's home is we pray for that home. And I'm sure prayers were uh, prayed in one of the rooms of our house. And I'm sure they prayed for the landlord, which was my grandfather. And I'm sure they prayed that uh, in one way or another, one day or another, God would bring this home salvation and that God would bring his blessing on this home and would sanctify this home and uh, I looked at that story the power of prayer I was talking with this woman realizing that I was actually the very first Christian in that home uh, from that point uh, it was probably like 30 years after they they were meeting at our home but prayer is very important because, you see, we realize that you and I cannot change anyone's life or mind about anything in this world. That if it's not for the Holy Spirit to touch people's hearts, we can tell them anything we want. We can bring them to 50 different churches, and they still won't become Christians. They still won't respond to God's call to become Christ's followers. But when we pray, God can prepare the hearts of people. He can touch their hearts. He can get them ready. So when we share the good news, when we develop that relationship, that they'd be ready to respond. So prayer. Prayer is very important. That's the first thing we want to do. But then something very practical as well. Invite them for dinner. I know some of you like Starbucks and places like that. That's great, too. Uh, but when you open your home, it communicates very special significance for people. Because when I open my home to someone, I basically tell them 
that I open myself to them. Who would decline an invitation to a dinner with, uh, prepared with love and generosity? Who would refuse a few hours of good fellowship? My wife and I, as part of our seminary training, had a long uh, counseling practic practicum with uh, clients, and uh, that ended just a few months ago. And uh, we would see client after client, and th those clients suffered from different, uh, different issues. They were going through different struggles in life. But one theme that emerged from a lot of our clients was loneliness. Loneliness. People have so many folks on their Facebook friends list or uh, in their phone book and their phones, but there's really no one to call. There's no one to talk to. It's a, we a weird situation because we all get the iPads and iPods and I the, all the eyes, and, but then even research shows that we talk to each other less and less. We communicate less and less. And people are lonely. But opening your home for folks gives them an opportunity to get to know you so you can share the good news with them. A good meal tells people that you love them, that you care for them. And another thing, you can, you can also use some of your natural gifts. I mean, if you know how to fix certain things, uh, you can go and help someone who, who needs that. If you're good at computers or something like that, someone needed his program to be reinstalled or, you know, computer's not working properly. Well, you can do that. Or you can help in any other way. Somebody's doing his, his yard work and needs some, some help, need another hand. If you're good at it, just go. Go for it. Help those people. That gives you an opportunity to spend some time. Gives you an opportunity to connect. Gives you an opportunity to build that relationship. If you're one of those golfers, I mean... Uh, that's the best place you can share the gospel on the golf cart. Because your buddies are stuck. They cannot run anywhere. <laughs> You're all on the same cart. But use those opportunities as you talk about gardening, as you talk about computers, as you talk about anything else under the sun. That's an opportunity to invite them to come to Alpha or uh, something of that nature, or some church concert. Opportunities. On the other hand, you can uh, also look for those projects that uh, I know some of you have been to Haiti and maybe some other places. I know George has been to uh, Nepal and other places around the world. But those are opportunities, as we call it, you know, short mission trips. Uh, opportunities all around. Even if renovation is not necessarily organizing it, it might be some other place, some other church. George would have referrals for that. But those are opportunities to also serve. And you can also do that locally. And there's an alpha team. You can join that. You can join the a angel tree. I think still doing that this year, right? So opportunities are around, you know. Use those opportunities. You yourself get involved. Here's another suggestion. Jesus calls us to reach out to the world. He gives us what we call the great commission. To make disciples of all nations. And I think... If you look at it realistically, none of us is able to really make disciples of all nations because we're physically limited. We can only go to certain places. Even missionaries that spend their whole lives in a certain place, they can only go to certain places. 
But for some of us, uh, that's not even possible. We have a life here. We, God has called us to a different type of service. But thinking of those missionaries, for them, the opportunity to do what they're doing is just because people like you and me support. Give financially to those ministries, to those organizations, to those specific families and uh, individuals. That's the only way for missionaries to actually respond to God's call and to do the work that God has called them to do. Now, I have a little disclaimer, fine print. Um, <laughs> we shouldn't be deceived when I say, you know, support missionaries. Uh, because, you see, our, uh, our gifts, uh, in most cases, are tax-exempt, right? But this, dot, this does not exempt us from actually doing the work ourselves as well, okay? So support, but also be involved in whatever God has called you locally. And so inviting people into our lives, sharing the good news with them, as simple as it sounds, this is what we can do to reach out those around us with the good news. This is also the example of Jesus and our fellow Christians throughout human history. Many of us know that story of uh, one of the greatest ships in human history. That's the Titanic. We've read about it. We've watched the movies uh, about the sinking and all that. Um, but with all the drama, with all the uh, love story and uh, the final tragedy, Hollywood doesn't seem to remember one of the passengers of the Titanic. John Harper. Four years after the Titanic sank, there was a meeting of survivors. Uh, a young Scotchman uh, got up and uh, talked to the meeting, and he said, I am a survivor of the Titanic. I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, and the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow, also on a piece of wreck near me. He said, man, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. And he said to me, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then the waters took him away. Then just a little bit later, the, uh, the waters brought him back to me. And he said again, are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. And he repeated again, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And shortly after... He went down. And there, along in the night, alone in the night, with two miles of waters under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. The question I want to leave you today with, who will be yours? wasn't really sure which language he was going to do this in because Stefan speaks seven languages, something like that. Yeah. Uh, 
as well as he does English, which isn't too well. <laughs> We've been working on it since uh, 2006, haven't we? Yeah. And Stefan and Ellie will be back at this part of the room at a table that they have set up back there. They'd love to talk to you a little bit about who they are, what they do, what their vision is for reaching students here and in Charlotte and really around, around the world. Uh, uh, they're just beginning a, a mission journey, and uh, God has great things in store for them. Uh, Stefan's a double major from uh, Gordon-Conwell with a uh, uh, Master's of Divinity and the counseling degree. I'm not sure exactly what that's called, Christian counseling. And Ellie's finishing up uh, counseling and what's the other? Christian's what? Biblical studies, biblical studies. They keep changing the names of these uh, programs, but it's biblical studies and, and Christian counseling. So we've got a couple of smart cookies here. Uh, you're, you usually have a dumb me, but you've got smart cookies in the building today. So do take an opportunity to speak with them.